Freedom song, freedom song, I got to sing my freedom song. I love my people, oh, I love us so. I got my freedom and I won't let go. Black lives matter, black lives matter, black lives matter to me. Your life matters, my life matters, black lives matter to me. Freedom song, freedom song, I got to sing my freedom song. I love my people, oh, I love us so. I got my freedom and I won't let go because black lives matter, black lives matter, black lives matter to me. Your life matters, my life matters, black lives matter to me. Freedom song, freedom song, I got to sing my freedom song. I love my people, oh, I love us so. I got my freedom and I won't let go because black lives matter, black lives matter, black lives matter to me. Your life matters, my life matters, black lives matter to me. Welcome to episode 24 of the Ferguson Response Network podcast, a weekly podcast devoted to supporting citizens working to create a lasting social change through sustained civil disobedience and civic action. I'm your host, Lizzie Mack, and I'm joined as always by my wonderful co-host, Los Angeles native, U.S. Navy veteran, avid Googler, blogger, founder of the Americans United Again movement, host of two other podcasts, the Americans United Again podcast, and co-host of the AUA Hope podcast with the lovely Sherelle. Let's welcome to the show, Ricky L. Hines II. What's going on, Ricky? And how are you doing tonight? Uh, doing pretty well. Doing pretty well. Awesome. If you're just joining us for the first time on this show, you can find us on iTunes or Stitcher Radio. Just search Ferguson Response. Or you can go to our website, fergusonresponse.org. And you can also find us uh, via the AUA app, which you can find on any Android device and also in the Google Play Store. And I think I got that 100% right this time, Ricky. Yes, although you missed um, the Social Justice Bullies podcast. Oh, yes. Our newest That's podcast. That's a new one. Yes. That's right. Um, I was just on the most recent episode, so talk about that for a minute. Yeah, um, well, it's uh, brought to you by Father Teresa's Wine Cellar and, and uh, Americans United again. It's called Social Justice Bullies, and uh, we serve as like a media watchdog for independent media spaces, and um, we're, we're assholes, so... We're not very nice about it. <laughs> it is what it is. It's a fun, um, funny show, even though we are talking about serious stuff. But, you know, we really kind of take, you know, you guys take, um, you know, like you said, independent media to task and hold them accountable for the fucked up shit that they do, too. So, yeah. Yeah, it's a good show. Yeah. You guys should check it out. And that's on iTunes as well, correct? Yes. Awesome. Uh, and tonight we are joined by a guest. We have Jonathan Newton on the show. What's going on, Jonathan? Good, good, good. Nothing much, really. Doing some work. Still in school. Yeah. in law school. That's right. Uh, you've been with us before, but if you guys are not familiar, Jonathan is the president of the National Association Against Police Brutality. That's NAA. PB. He is currently a law student at the University of the District of Columbia Law School, and he's also a former law enforcement officer, which will come in handy as our large topic for tonight is going to be discussing prison reform or uh, criminal justice reform versus um, police and prison abolition. So um, that's going to be our larger topic. But before we get to that, we did have a, a couple of news items we wanted to cover. Um, first, uh, obviously, news that came out since our last show, which is that um, the officer or the 
officers, I guess, uh, involved in the death of Natasha McKenna will not be charged. That was announced this past week, along with the video of um, her last moments before um, being taken to the hospital where she ended up subsequently dying three days later. Um, did either of you or both of you watch the video? I don't know if you did or didn't. I, I have not watched the video, but I'm I'm always aware of the uh, the decision. That's right here across the river uh, in the D.C. area in Fairfax County, yep. and um, I haven't seen the video. Uh, you know, one one of the bloggers that I'm aware of, she saw the video and just the way that she was describing it and and, and how her life was ended with tasers is you know it's, I see so much of this and. Um, knowing that that could have been dealt with in an entirely different manner, that woman could have not been, should have not been killed yeah. in that jail. Yeah. So. How about you, Ricky? Did you get a chance to see it? Um, I didn't. I consciously didn't watch it simply because sometimes I got to sit these out. Yeah. Uh, I read, I read the, the account of what yeah. happened and I, I have a pretty vivid imagination. I'm, <laughs> you know, I'm pretty sure there's no fucking excuse for that happening. Yeah. I don't need the yeah. video to know that. Yeah, um, yeah, I hear you on that. I mean, I didn't watch it either. I actually stopped watching these videos. I just can't do it anymore. And I also because, like you said, like I already know what happened. I don't really need the video evidence to convince me. Um, mm-hmm, un- mm-hmm. Unlike white America, so I don't really have that need. Um, I did, you know, read. I know that uh, Netta um, actually she live tweeted as she was watching. Um, so her th- thoughts and and she went pretty. Um, in good detail. So I did read that account and I read a couple of accounts as well. So obviously, uh, as we all have said, completely unnecessary um, loss of life and murder of, of this woman. But a few things about it struck me just that she was naked the entire time during the altercation. Um, and these men walked in in um, these like hazmat suits and she was having, mm-hmm. you know, obviously some mental issues at the time, which they knew about. You can even see in her mugshot that, you know, her, her, her eyes are not, you know, they're glazed over and, you know, something is going on there that's not healthy. And um, she she says a lot of things in the video, but her very last words are, you promised me you wouldn't kill me. Yeah. And really struck me just this idea of, of we've seen over and over again of, of black men and women pleading for their lives to no avail. And um, obviously this, uh, the, the protest community in the um, DMV area have taken this very seriously. And there was a hearing or um, a community meeting that was held um, at a middle school there. I actually helped uh, put together the graphics that they used to promote uh, people asking to come. But Erica Totten, who um, leads up the DMV Black Lives Matter group, uh, spoke at the at the meeting so I'll just play this and this is before the review board that, that ended up saying that there was no wrongdoing and that there would be no charges filed based on um, Natasha's death. I have not read Casual Killing Act of 1705 from Virginia. You need to read this because this is what we are experiencing today. It's not just in Virginia. It is everywhere. And it reads, and if any slave resists his master or owner or other person by his or her order, her, sheriff, correcting such slave and shall happen to be killed in such correction, it shall not be accounted felony. It shall not be accounted felony. But the master, owner, and every such other person so giving correction shall be free and acquit of all punishment and accusation.
accusation for the same as if such incident had never happened. This is what we're dealing with today. This casual killing act of 1705 from this state is specifically showing up in this case for Natasha McKinney. Her death was ruled, her murder was ruled an accident as if it never happened. That is a problem for me as a black woman in this country because Natasha McKinney is me. chapter in the DMV area. So, well, just first thoughts, Ricky, from you on what Erica had to say. And just, you know, for me, there is, there is this um, visceral part of it where she talks about these reports that allow 
those that terrorize and have afflicted, inflicted this pain um, and loss of life, that they get to write the story. You know, that, that old adage, the history is always written by uh, the winner. And, and in this case, when we talk about history always being written by the aggressor, um, how, how can we ever find justice in that kind of um, information gathering process? You know, to be honest, she made she made a point that she made a point to use that statute. And the reason being is because slavery is not illegal in this country. Mm-hmm. Slavery can be as punishment for a crime. What was she accused of? She was in jail, so clearly there was some quote unquote crime that she committed, right? So again, extrajudicial ed- execution of what is supposed to be an American citizen mm-hmm. and is not is not treated like one and if you and if you say well, oh you know any American can be treated like that yeah but they don't mm-hmm. they're not mm-hmm. so what you know what else can you say to that other than you guys are still you know the, the law is still there they're still and they can still be acquitted of it under that law Mm. Jonathan, your thoughts? Well, you know, I, I would follow up on, on, on what Ricky said in that the law is still allowing uh, people's conduct to, to exist and to, be, uh, to, to allow these, these, these types of acts to occur. Um, there is wide latitude and discretion that correctional officers have uh, inside those facilities. There are a myriad of theoretical justifications that are not moral justifications for um, the behavior of correctional officers and the behavior and conduct of police officers. And uh, until we change the policies and the law that allows that unchecked uh, discretion and latitude that they have, we should not be surprised when we see uh, these cases come up, you know, year after year. It's almost month after month at this point um, that, that, that cause these types of, of things to occur. And so, you know, what, what, what I hear from Sister Totten is the, you know, the, 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 the frustration and the, uh, you know, the, the, the level of, 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 of response to a situation that the law allows this to go on, and it's mainly perpetrated mm. uh, on black and brown people in this country. Mm. And so we really get to the point where we are changing policy and changing law, and then we can demand that the practices change at that point. Because right now, these people are making this from a, these people are making these uh, incidents occur under the law, because the law allows like I said, these unchecked discretionary decisions to be made street side with police officers and uh, they can be made inside these correctional facilities with correctional officers. And the outcome is um, this woman was tasered to death inside uh, a facility and she was obviously had some, some mental uh, problems. But that, you know, how many people in this country every single day have a psychotic break or some kind of mental issue and they are not killed inside of the facilities that house them. Right. 
And so that's what we need to be looking at. How could something like this happen uh, in a very controlled environment with a woman who had no weapon on her whatsoever? Zero. How could something like this happen that she's tasered to death? Right. And, I, and that, for me, there also is just like this other notion of, and this is something I've brought up plenty of times, is what responsibility do the police and law enforcement have when they take possession and custody of an individual? You know, it, it, they are responsible for their safety. Um, and time and time again, we see these situations occur where they're in in control of an individual and, and still are, are considered dangerous. I, I just like, yeah. it, it just doesn't make sense to me in the concept of what's supposed to be going on. Um, and we'll get into the whole, uh, you know, reform part of that, that conversation and that comment that you made, uh, Jonathan, a little bit later for sure. What were you going to say though? Let, let me say this. When an officer takes possession of your body through custody, he is responsible for your safety and for your well-being. Uh, when they transport you to the jail and place you in the custody of that sheriff or in that uh, 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 warden or wherever you're going that you're in custody, they are responsible for your safety and well-being. Right. And what we need to see happen across America is we need to see policy and law changed so that uh, it's already there's already policy and law that's going to uh, attempt to remedy this situation on the civil side. So the family will get a settlement, um, and the taxpayers will bear the brunt of that uh, that, that that bill, and uh, that will be that will be that will go you know be done and take years to settle or whatnot. Maybe even happen very fast. But in order to prevent acts like this from happening, um, there needs to be some criminal sanctions mm. that uh, that need to occur to deter this type of behavior. We use criminal sanctions to deter all kinds of behavior in America, but we don't use criminal sanctions to deter uh, police officers and correctional officers and prosecutors and judges from doing all kinds of acts of barbarity towards black and brown people. The same medicine that we use to control and deter behavior uh, from every other citizen of America needs to be utilized on our criminal justice uh, officials and administrators to stop them from doing this type of stuff. Well, I think that in order for that to happen, though, there also has to be a conversation about people seeing said black and brown individuals as worthy of being protected and worthy of, mm -hmm. um, you know, all of those things. And I would extend that to anybody that's basically pretty much in, in the criminal justice system. We have a, um, cultivated a culture with which we're okay locking people up and throwing away the key with zero mm -hmm. um, nuance and zero consideration. You know, all of these, we, we see this play out and actually the next story I want to talk about is an example of this with these zero tolerance policies. And when mm -hmm. you have zero tolerance, you have zero nuance, you have zero um, understanding, you have zero ability to have decision making enter the process and none of those things are good when we're talking about human lives. But when the people mm -hmm. that are affected by them are considered less than human then that becomes an, uh, a, a hurdle you don't have to go over um, so of course I'm talking about um, young boy Ahmed Mohammed um, who took mm -hmm. a homemade clock to school and was suspended from his suburban Dallas high school and detained in handcuffs by police officers on Monday after they accused him of making a fake bomb which first of all mm -hmm. I'm going to just start right there that 
I'm glad that they're at least now saying they accuse him of making a fake bomb because the original um, stories were saying that they accused him of making a bomb, which is ridiculous mm-hmm. and obviously was not the case because if they really thought there was a bomb there, there would have been a bomb that thrown, all the children would have been evacuated. Lots of other things would have happened. They certainly wouldn't have put the, the briefcase in the back of a police car and had him sit there for hours taking pictures so let's uh, that's one thing i'd like to clarify what is what is making a fake what is what is what constitutes a fake bomb like bombs are meant to look like things that you wouldn't necessarily notice none of it makes any sense whatsoever so but uh so so i think that you know but this is another example of one of these zero tolerance things like they have some sort of zero tolerance in place and not you know these things get pulled and all of this stuff happens the yeah, that's the narrative that they want to push at sure. this point, but that's really not that. That's really not a, see, this, 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 this notion of zero tolerance is what they use as the guys to, 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 to do all sorts of stuff to black and brown kids. Absolutely. Okay? And the way that it even came about was, uh, zero tolerance is an offshoot from, uh, sentencing reform. And when sentencing reform took place, uh, they, the judges used to give all kinds of arbitrary sentences to black and brown people, desperate sentencing practicing. And in the 80s, they had, they had another criminal justice reform movement that uh, said that, you know what, we're going to fix this problem because we don't want judges giving out desperate sentences so to blacks and, and then giving whites another sentence. So they come up with mandatory minimums. And then after mandatory minimums, the policy just kept evolving and evolving until we got to the, what we now see as zero tolerance for and fill in the blank. So zero tolerance then transcended down into our school system, and this is what you have. But let, let, me, let, me, let me say this one thing. We don't really have zero tolerance in our schools. We have zero tolerance for behavior out of black children. Because what happens is, even in the, you know, prosecutors will say, we have zero tolerance for this. Well, what they do is they then change the charges for white people, and they charge black people under the zero tolerance policy. So there's still a lot of flexibility uh, in these systems that we have. They just simply say, you know what, he doesn't meet the criteria to be charged under that. You know, but but somehow, mysteriously, the black or the brown child uh, can be charged as an adult uh, you know, in, in, in a myriad of situ- situations and circumstances. Right, and I think um, that, that that is where I think a lot of the friction between reform and uh, mm-hmm. abolition comes from because in reality, there aren't any reform measures that you're going to put in place to stop those individual points where people are able to make judgment calls and people are able to um, apply their their judgment to situations that they have no business really making. And so, you know, we see this in the criminal justice system all the time. There's just, there's discretion at every level of interaction of individual has with our criminal justice system. There's a decision that a police officer has to make, whether they're going to arrest or not in that moment. That's a decision. That's a decision the prosecutor has to make. What are they going to charge and what are they going to move forward with? There's a decision all the way through sentencing that happens and we as black people are always on the negative end of that because if there is somebody making a decision it's not going to go our way this is what privilege is in our society so Uh reform i don't know how reform attacks those things and how the power would get shifted well look at it this way um white people are afraid to look uh, stand up for their own fucking selves even if we removed every person of color out of the uh, criminal justice system, we would still be the most. Um, we'd still have the highest prison population in the world. We still have the highest share of the prison population in the world. Mm. 
That is disturbing. That is fucking disturbing. That you could remove every bit of. You could re, you could completely release everyone who was of color in jails. What does that say about what white people are willing to tolerate to to keep racism in place? That privilege in place. So, so I want I want to go back to to what you said, Leslie, about these points of discretion throughout the criminal justice system. Uh, in 2013, I wrote a paper called "Racial Discrimination." Uh, racial disparity in the criminal justice system, and you are dead on when you talk about these points of discretion that are sh- that are that are that are sprinkled about through, through from from the front end all the way to the probation end. That's what I want to say uh, in the in, in the process. You have um, police officers, prosecutors, judges, and correctional officers, and then probation officers. These fivefold I call it the fivefold criminal justice ministry. Um, that have each one of them have discretionary abilities and authorities that are granted to them either statutorily uh, in their state that allow them to make these decisions with very little accountability and transparency. So where where I I depart from the thought of you know we can't reform this. Here's what I say: the very first step to reforming our criminal justice system at these points of discretion is open and active tracking and uh, displaying of the numbers. That's the very first thing. At every point of discretion, I'm talking about traffic stops, I'm talking about interactions, uh, uh, those numbers can be tracked by race and by gender um, when they occur, and they can literally be live. So if we have, uh, we make up 12.9% of the population, if we see you know, in a certain particular area, those numbers are, are, are correlated properly, but we see that interactions with, with black, black subjects are 60% as opposed to uh, their normal ratio, which is 12%, uh, we see that we have a problem. So even at the, the charging stage of the criminal procedure, uh, you could track what a prosecutor offers in terms of pleas or plea deals, what they uh, do in terms of prosecution, what they do in terms of um, uh, pre, uh, pre-sentencing uh, alternatives, uh, alternatives to prosecution, and so even at the judicial level. But there is no tracking. So uh, in the police realm, out on the street, I will tell you this. By default, most officers in America, when they pull over a car and they're doing their call-out routine, they literally say, I have, hold me out, I have a, then they describe the car, then it, then they describe the occupants of the car before they ever go up to the car most of the time, as long as they can make a visual on what's in the car. Right. Once they get to the car, if they can see the occupants, then they tell how many occupants, what their gender is, and what their race is. That's all part of the regular police protocol in affecting a traffic stop because if something bad goes wrong, they want to know who to look for. So those numbers are already recorded. They're just not open and displayed and tracked for the specific purpose of reducing racial discrimination and racial disparity in the criminal justice system. So 
I think that that's our first point of attack. It needs to be in setting up that system so that we can see the numbers. If you know we're dealing with this, it's a. I'm not saying it's a numbers game, but I'm saying that numbers really give us our starting point so that we can see if there's a there's a problem going on here. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, the well, other, I think we ahead. know there's a problem, right. but I think <laughs> it, we we all know that there's. But it's a good way to quantify it. And yeah, yeah, it's just how so, big yeah. of a problem it is. Like, there's no if if you've ha- ever had any kind of fucking interaction with police. But I mean, my thing is, we know we know how many people are locked up and in jail. Like the the thing of right. the thing about it is, we know quite a few of these pieces of the puzzle. We have the numbers. Like for real, yeah. I, I say this all the time to people. I ask them when they try and you know say there's no problems with criminal justice and everything's fair and blah 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 you know whatever and i say to them well you answer this question for me then and you only have two answers why are there so many black people in jail compared to our portion of this country's population because the only two answers you can give me is either something's fucked up with this system or black people are inherently violent and prone to criminality. Yeah, there's, yeah. there's no other explanation for the numbers that we, we do have and that they can't hide mm-hmm. because we know them. So, I mean, I guess for me, it's like, yeah, okay, they'll give us more, more data. And what does that do? Because we have fucking data. There's, there's data there. Let's not say that there isn't just because we don't have there's it from only, each there's police only, officer. There's only data on the back end of this. And what I mean by that, you can go to sentencing project, um, the sentencing project, we have the numbers as far as incarceration goes. We have the numbers in, as far as uh, 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 um, sentencing goes. We even have, we don't have open and transparent numbers. See, to, to, what, I'm, what I'm proposing is getting at the numbers on the front end of the system, which is the traffic stops and the interactions, so that we can really pinpoint, and so we, we already know there's a problem, that's, that's it. I want to start holding people accountable. Like, for instance, we hold uh, uh, in, in police departments throughout America, people say, oh, there's no quota system, okay? The reality is there's really no quota system. But you be out there for a good month and don't write, at least, you know, a, a, a number of tickets that is, is at least comparable to your colleagues and see if you don't get pulled into the sergeant's office. So what I'm saying is, is that we need to have a look at these numbers and determine that officer's out of line right there. You can tell that particular officer is out of line because all he pulls over is black and brown people in a community where there are more than, and so then we can, we can use that information then to extract that person from the criminal justice process. We can use that same information at the prosecutorial level to extract somebody from a prosecutorial role when all they do is offer these bonk plea deals to black and brown people. But we cannot remove anybody if we don't know that that person right there is the one who's doing this type of behavior inside our system. You know, we just know, hey, they end up in jail, and we know that they end up in jail because we know that they're running around doing these things in black communities more than they do them in white communities, but we don't know the specific officer who's doing this type of stuff. That's just my thoughts. So I see that as a purpose. I mean, I guess I Mm -hmm. see that as a potential solution Mm -hmm. for reform and I see the the logic in that. But I guess it Mm -hmm. seems like a lot of trouble to go through. And I always ask myself, what is the positive that comes out of any of this that Mm -hmm. happens within the criminal justice system? 
comparatively to the work you're talking about i mean it's just like this whole idea of like film every encounter with civilians like okay what the fuck else do we pay for in our society that we're like nope we want it to be filmed all the time would you drop your child off? would you drop your child off at a daycare that required you to film them 24 7 no you would never do that but 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 when 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 i i understand and i hear this is a huge massive undertaking but let me let me let me say this Every single time an officer interacts with somebody on the streets, do you know what they do before they interact with them? Either it's a traffic stop or it's a, or it's a, it's a walk and talk where we're talking to somebody. That officer, if he's done it the proper way, nine times out of ten, he has called out to the dispatch to let them know, hey, hold me out, I'm, I'm with a female subject out in front of the McDonald's uh, and she's you know, white or black or whatever and, you know, da 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 That's just for officer safety. Okay, now, so that information is already transmitted and communicated. It's just not aggregated and it's not looked at to determine if that officer has a problem uh, with just talking to black females, just talking to uh, black males. So, so that information can be aggregated and determined whether that particular officer has a problem. That's, that's kind of what I want to see. I know it's a, it's a huge undertaking. It really is. But, but I think that the, 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 the trade-off is the only way to really get an officer to change his behavior is to hold him accountable for that behavior. And it already works. Because, but it, it works. It works in the sense that officers are held accountable for the amount of tickets that they write. Officers are held accountable for the amount of stop and talks that they do, stop and frisk that they do. But we don't hold them accountable for the for the for the racial overtones of the stop and frisk. So uh, we, you know, there's, there's because we're not aggregating that data and we're not we're not looking at that data to find out that before. Eric Garner was killed up there. What was Daniel Pantaleo's interactions like with black males before he had this interaction? And if we knew that Daniel Pantaleo only messed with African-American men, we could actually prevent that stuff. It's preventative. So but that's, well, that's I'll, my pushback. I'll, <laughs> I'll say this. I think the data is – I think the data would be good for allowing us to really – answer the question whether or not the concept of a police station in this society or police officers and law enforcement in this society is even fucking worth it. If it's worth the the social risk and harm that it takes. Because if you look at this information and you actually have like all of it and you see on the front end and on the back end what happens you can say look we get shit coming in and shit going out we really don't fucking need this. You know Mm -hmm. then it's it's a question of you know what do we really need this? We have a lot of data on the front, on the back end, which mm-hmm. I can understand why people question. Um, and I don't. For those who are against abolition, the abolition of our justice system, for the most part, um, I can understand. It's been fucked up. It's been fucked up and sickened and perverted for so long. At what point do you need to call it quits? I just, me being a numbers person, I'd like to put the numbers to it. Um, yeah. I, and really make an so, informed decision. 
But, but we've so seen reality is a lot of people are dying. And we've seen reform work in exactly the opposite way. I mean, you you yourself, Jonathan, you just talked about the reform that we've seen in the recent past. Well, that's because yeah, that's because that's because of this one thing here, Leslie. And I and there's not been what what we're doing with Black Lives Matter and what we're doing in this generation is transformational. When criminal justice reform rolled out in the 1980s, it rolled out from the top down. Mm. When we get criminal justice reform this time, guess where that's coming from? The bottom up. A lot, and so why, when I say, I, I, now that's just predictive. I'm predicting that it's coming from the bottom up. But the ideas, with, like what DeRay is doing with Campaign Zero, those are coming from us going up. Notice that none of the people, Rand Paul, Bernie Sanders, Hillary Clinton, none of these people have said, this is my solution that I have to deal with the criminal justice uh, system in America. And they're never these going to, though. My thing is huh? they're never going to, and neither is our no, they're never going to because they're, they're never going to because it's a, that's a political question, and that should come from. But So what I'm saying is, is when criminal justice reform happened in the 80s, because it did happen, uh, just on a specific scope issue of sentencing reform, and also, uh, yeah, sentencing reform, we got mandatory minimums. So uh, when we're doing it this time, yes, all reform, you know, it has the capacity to not come out the way we want if we are not involved with the crafting of the policy and the implementation. We'll get a criminal justice reform, and you might as well put criminal justice reform in quotes, because what we'll get is some shit that nobody says makes any damn sense. And that's what my, my fear is, is that, you know, when, 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 when Michelle Alexander talks about the next iteration of, 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 of mass incarceration transforming to what next, there's a big question mark there as to what this thing is going to look like next. And if we're not involved in that process, we can expect this thing to transform into something uh, more subtle, more clandestine, and probably even just as efficient or as or even more efficient than what it currently is. But I, because I, we have – go ahead. I was just saying so, I think we, we have gone from – we have had criminal justice reform in the past. Mm-hmm. Sorry. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I, I, let's look at campaign zero since you mentioned it. I mean, they have 10 things that they've listed here. And, and personally, I could see all of them going in a bad direction, depending on how the reform has played out. So the first one is, is ending broken windows policing. Um, so they talk about, you know, ending policing for minor broken windows offenses like consumption of alcohol in streets, marijuana possession, disorderly conduct, trespassing, loitering. They want to end profiling and stop and frisk, and they want to establish alternative approaches to mental health crises in that one. Uh, they talk about the End Racial Profiling Act of 2015. Yeah, which, yep, uh, which has been out there. And then the New York City Community Safety Act and New York City Stop and Frisk Reforms. And then, uh, obviously, there's a bunch of marijuana law, uh, laws acts that would go into the minor offenses side of things. So... That's just one. They talk about community oversight, establishing civilian oversight structures and removing barriers to reporting police misconduct. I still, again, all of those ones that address like misconduct and things, I just think it's like we are um, still 
making room Checking on the surface for for these for these people to abuse us on a regular basis and then how we deal with it after the fact so um they talk about limiting use of force so establishing mm-hmm. standards and reporting of police use of deadly force obviously that's a huge one because nobody actually mm-hmm. even counts these things uh revise and strengthen local police departments use of force policies and traffic related police killings and dangerous high-speed police chases uh, mm-hmm. And monitor how police use force and proactively hold officers accountable for excessive force. Yeah. So, but they, so that, that framework. Go ahead. They're I'm to, sorry. Solve, they're to solve the emergency that's going on. Right. Uh, they're 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 the fix. They're the the fix. The tourniquet. Mm-hmm. You know, to stop you from bleeding oh. out. It's not going to save your leg. Right. Um. There there has to be. There has to be a change in the ment- there has to be a change in people's mentality because even with the first one, right, ending broken windows policing. Well, if you live in a neighborhood where you're okay, let's say you're outside drinking, somebody might call it. Somebody's going to end up calling the cops. Guess what? They got to show up. So you know, it, it depends. It will it will lessen the problem. It will certainly lessen the problem. But at the same time, we really have to get to the root of the issue, which is. Do we even need a justice system in this country? Because, mm-hmm. and, and I don't speak seriously. Don't speak, seriously, let me ask you this question. I got to, I got to, I got to ask you: What is your thesis for not having a justice system in America? What, what, would, you, what would be your basis for not not saying? I know you're going to say because it's so jacked up, but tell me how something like what would you do to get justice for any kind of criminal activity? If you didn't have a system at all. Well, I think that right there is the difference is like, I don't think that we've even asked that question societally. And I'm not here to say that I know the solution, but I also don't think it's something we even consider because we've, we have been, um, you know, trained on this idea that this is the only way we have to have enforcement. We have to have, um, you know, the types of interactions that lead to, as you mentioned, justice. And so I think that there can be a reframing of what justice means, what it is, Mm -hmm. how we as a society operate and, and interact with each other and what that looks like in a different way. Um, You know, the million hoodies um, for justice, they have uh, an entire program that they're continuing to roll out called thinking about safety beyond policing. And so what does it look like Mm -hmm. when we're safe but not policed. And what is what does that mean to us? And so I, that would be my answer to that question is like, do I have a, a, a step-by-step plan for you? No, but do I also think that us spending all this time talking about reforming these racist-ass police departments is the way to go? I don't think so. I, I think that when if you're going to talk about having a society without a justice system, I mean, I mean our justice system as it is, Sometimes you have to chuck the baby out with the fucking bathwater. It's very rarely do you do so, but you have to at least question it. Like if you don't question it, you'll miss you'll miss it. And so, one of the things that you can look at is yes, is there a, is there a, a social need for people um, to feel safe and need to be protected when someone loses their shit, like and decides they want to walk into a mall and shoot up everything? Yeah, okay, sure, we need that. Um, it doesn't require this giant fucking apparatus to to do. Um, you know, there th- th- we have to ask that question. Like some, again, I don't know that I'm qualified to be in the room when 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 people looking at question, they're looking at that question and they're asking that question, and we're having that discuss 
people are having that discussion, but no one's even having this fucking discussion. That's the problem, is that we don't really ever have that discussion as a society, as a fucking species. Well, so, how, so I, 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 I hear, I hear the, the, the basis for this um, justice system uh, eradication being that this system that we have now is so toxic and, and rancid and, and unjust that that's the basis for it. That would be the basis for taking away the apparatus that we do have. I just want to make sure I'm clear on the on the on the on the argument on the thesis before I before I respond to it and say you know what I think. Am I clear on that? Um, yeah. Sometimes you got to get a new car. You can't always fix okay. the old one that you have up. I I, right. I don't. That's ahead, not the basis of my problem. I mean, I, my problem with the reform pieces is mm-hmm. that, but my problem okay. with or my my reason for. Um, wanting prison abolition is and criminal justice abolition is more rooted in a different way of living our lives and that the possibility mm-hmm. exists of living without it. And so why would we not be exploring that? That's where my, so that's let, where so, I come so from. So let's, 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 let me ask you this question. And I, and I, and I'm just saying this for, for the, for, for, for the benefit of the listeners that are out there listening to this, explain to everybody what you mean by Prison abolition, abolition, and 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 justice abolition before because I'm going to respond to I I you know what I think you know is is, is the counter argument to to, to to that my my of, my response would be if we look at the indicators of crime very little mm-hmm. of it has to do with policing what it has to do with is our communities. And the society with which we live in and the opportunities that exist within said society. So we are approaching this from a situation when we talk about prison and criminal justice, about attacking a problem, not at the cause, but at the effect. And so for me, the point would be to start at the effect and then we don't have to worry so much about the, I mean, to start at the problem, the point of the problem, and then we don't have to worry so much about the effect. So that's what I mean when I say that. So, so, so let me, let me just, let me just not recharacterize because I think that the term prison or justice system abolition is, 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 an, is when I say an extreme term, it basically uh, connotes almost like a state of, you know, anarchy where we don't have a system at all. What you're saying is a reduced structure that is not as uh, a, a large to deal with issues that if we dealt with the causal effect of those issues as opposed to just the effect of those issues, then, then, then we, would have a, we would have a better outcome and also a better, more efficient system because that's what, that's what I'm hearing. And I agree with that. I, in other words, I agree with we don't need to be building bigger prisons and having larger police forces and having more police encounters. What we need to be building to reduce any crime in America is we need to be building bigger schools and bigger economic opportunities and bigger and better uh, uh, access to these economic factors that drive uh, any criminal activity that happens inside certain, uh, you know, areas. Because I, I, I want to, I want to make sure that 
and anybody's hearing this is, is understanding that you're not talking about just getting rid of the system entirely. Well, I mean, I'm, I might be. I'm, I might be. I don't know what the end result of it is. I'm not, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go so far as to say that because I don't think that the structure that we may or may not need in that case of, of this mm-hmm. beyond policing model, um, mm-hmm. and looking at what the definition of public safety is, because I think that's at the heart of this duality that exists is what does public safety mean? And right. um, how you mm-hmm. how you attack achieving that depends on how you define it. So for me, I mean, it may not be at all what we have now. It may be, you know, completely different because it's going to be dealing with a completely different problem. Or I, I should say it should be completely different because it would be dealing with a completely different problem. So I, I, I look at it from from this perspective here <clears throat> when I talk about what I'd like to see the police look like in black and brown communities. I simply would like to see them look and behave like they behave in white communities. You don't see an overpresence, okay? Uh, you don't see them running up and down the street, blue lights and sirens. Um, you don't see them doing jump outs. You don't see all of this bizarre occupation-like behavior. And so that, to me, is the, the goal is seeing equity of treatment with the same type of treatment that's happening in other communities uh, with, with with my community. Uh, you and know, so, I, I would I would challenge that because I would say back to you that when you see a high rate of. Uh, spousal abuse among police officers and nothing happens in their own communities that are largely white. That shows you that they are, and okay. they are, they are enacting the same, uh, level of authority. And it's just that they don't feel the need to excise it until they're challenged. And black people okay. are immediately challenging to them. That's the difference. It's nothing to do okay. with yeah. them. It has to do with how they feel about the people that they're interacting with. So when you, when you talk about them doing officer-involved domestic violence in their own, in, in their communities, I'm not taking anything away from what is being done because that, that, that's, one of the, that's one of my pet peeves is that there's not enough speak about OIDV, you know, officer-involved uh, domestic violence. What I'm talking about is the very public portion of the disparity of how we police black and brown communities versus how we police black communities. First, the stuff that's out of the outside of the veneer, you know, matching that. Uh, because, to be honest, you know, even inside uh, African-American uh, law enforcement officers, probably the numbers are just the same as far as OIDV uh, is concerned in terms of how some of their spouses are, 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 are treated. I, I think there's a study um, that says, you know, obviously uh, uh, police officers have more uh, officer-involved domestic violence, I think it's almost like three times the rate of everybody else. And it's not reported, it's not dealt with. Um, but, you know, getting, getting back to this, 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 this idea of what, what, what's our aim here? You know, what, what, what's our aim here with criminal justice reform this time around? And Campaign Zero sets up a good framework, I think, and, and I want to say a good framework is, you know, we're either going what to, what I'm hearing is, is I think there's two outcomes that, that, that we're positing tonight. One is, you know, throw the baby out with the bathwater, and the other is, 
you know, the, the other is is that we need criminal justice reform. So, you know, the the what we currently have is um, we have a system that is unjust and a system that is doing these things that have it has been doing. But I think we have an opportunity at this point to 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 really say what do we want criminal justice to look like going forward for the next generation and for ourselves. And I think that that framework that, that they that 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 uh, they came up with with Campaign Zero is a solid framework uh, to begin that conversation of filling in the blanks as to what we want to see happen. I'm not I'm not a I'm not a an abolitionist. I'm preparing to be a lawyer because I believe that in all of this, I think that at the end of uh, the only way to get change is either have a state of, of, of natural law, which we defend our rights with the sort of our brow and by the sword, or we have a state of civil law that we do it with statutes and everybody's held equally under the law. I know that's a, a, a ideal scenario and that people say it's almost Santa Claus-like, but that's the only thing that I have to to hope for is that we can get to the true meaning of you know of of what we're trying to accomplish. The the, the words that are written down in our constitution, our Declaration of Independence, all that stuff. So I'm you know I don't want to hijack yeah, but the even conversation. That, but no, no, no. But even you're you're absolutely right. But even that, and as someone who supports that idea, I, I'm of I'm always of two minds about these things because when we mm-hmm. talk about problems such as white supremacy and when we talk about problems such as the 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 way that they manifest themselves that it manifests itself in different institutions it's always about trimming you know trimming the branches but also cutting at the roots and so honestly one of those things that cutting at the roots is do we do we fucking need like do we need a justice system as it stands? This this justice system, again, even if it, even if black people were never involved in the justice system whatsoever, mm-hmm. there's we still have the highest prison population in the world. That is a like at some point we have to ask ourselves. And again, I'll, I'll say this again. I don't know that I'm smart enough to be in that fucking room when they're having the conversation. But the conversation really does need to be had, and it needs to be had in earnest. We we know enough to actually say that this is a problem, and I think cutting the branches and getting the information, the data, gives us a better way to mold something going forward that looks that that resembles pieces of our criminal justice system, but is not our criminal justice system. Again, it's like switching over from a car. It's like buying a new car. Oh well, you know what? I have this. Uh, I have this Camry. I've driven it for a while. It fucking sucks now. But when I first got it, I like this, 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 and this about it. Okay, I'll look for a car note with with those principles. Hop in, and you know the things that I didn't like, I got rid of. Mm-hmm. That's, you know, progress. This... That's progress. That's progress. <laughs> <laughs> This 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 notion of getting rid of it altogether, it just it just makes me nervous. Okay, the other thing is this. Okay, what makes you nervous about it? If, well, because if when when we get rid of it, mm-hmm. what do we have in its replacement? Mm-hmm. You and know, so, is it you know anarchy so, and white supremacy? So, yeah, 
Well, I'm not. Okay, I'm, so, why, why does so it have if, to be anarchy? If, why does it have to be anarchy? Yes, why does it have to be? Why is that well, the assumption? Well, you, you would, you would not option. necessarily have anarchy. You would have a state of what's called natural law, where, again, I defend mine to the best of my ability and anybody else. You know, we, we call, you know, anarchy is just, you know, everybody does what everybody does, but it would be a, really a state of natural law. But let me ask you this. Are we upset with, and I say upset with, our... Our, our argument is not necessarily against the principle of the system. It's against the practice of the system. And by cutting that distinction, we should be worried. We should be literally changing the practices of the system. Close your eyes just for a minute and think about the Constitution that you know of, Rick, okay, and that I know of, and that we know of. Okay, just all its words. That's a damn nice document. And it, you know, now the practice of those folks that drafted this wonderful statement that says we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, then they went on to describe what they determined was their definition of what a man was to them. That's the practice. But just taking the words alone, the principle, is fine. Okay, we need but, uh, to be but, concentrating. Uh, we need to be concentrating on the practice. How is it that we came from? Uh, I'm not saying we, but how is it that we have a, this type of document as the basis, the, the chassis for the car that we talk about? But it's riding so rough over people's lives, and it's not. It's because the practice of the way we're driving that car, the way that, that white supremacy has driven that car, has been exclusively for the purpose and propagation of white supremacy. But if you take that document, and I wanted to go start me a country, let me be honest with you, there'd be a few things I would change in that document that uh, would 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 give I, I wouldn't want to change shit. The only thing I would want to change is the practice. I would want to change it so that the practice we live out the true meaning of what's on that document. So you'd still because, want people that are convicted yeah. of a crime and in prison to be considered slaves. I just want to be clear. Say that again? I said you'd still well, want that's those... an amendment. That's an amendment. I would fix that. I would fix that language because I have pointed that out in many of the talks that I've given is that, you know, this amendment did not abolish slavery. It just changed the prerequisites for slavery. That's it. Yeah. But no, I don't. I'm not, I don't agree with, and that's just a technical argument. I say a technical argument. I, I don't. But agree we're talking with that, tech, you know? but we're talking technicalities here because you're talking about the yeah. letter of a document. I, I, I just, yeah. That's technical. What, what I'm saying is, if I had to fix uh, the, the basis of the document before before some of those amendments were made, you know, the, the, that that on principle alone was okay. Well, the amendments that you know, the Thirteenth Amendment. I think to this day needs to be corrected to actually abolish slavery. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I think it needs to be. Well, I think the Thirteenth Amendment. We need to. We need to either fix the language of the Thirteenth Amendment, but I don't. I, I think that that's unconstitutional, is what I've been told. So we actually have to make an amendment to to change the language of an amendment. Well, truthfully, from my perspective too, there there is an aspect of when I when I really think both ends of this tail through, whether mm-hmm. it's reform or abolition. We come across the same issue, which is that our country and its government and its, mm-hmm. um, you know, economic systems are so entrenched with this unjust system that we are seeking to reform or get rid of. Uh, I don't see the power being given up. I don't know. I don't know any reforms that are truly. We could talk about body cams. We could talk about all this stuff. Mm-hmm. But are we really going to be able to enact situations that take 
military and valued power away from our law enforcement arms of this country. I don't see them doing it. I don't see this so, country the way it sits right so, now. Judy. So, so let's go. Let's let's let's, let's just look at it. Let's just look at our, our scope of history, and let's look at some other large issues and put this particular issue inside of context, and just look at the arc of history and determine whether this is an issue that can be dealt with and fixed. Okay, we've had a country that had slavery that is a legalized institution, and in it's and it's we still have slavery now. I want to be clear on that. We had open slavery where people were being snatched without any kind of quote-unquote due process. Okay, that was changed. And we had Jim Crow era, and that was, you know, we, we had the Jim Crow era, and that was changed. So in our generation and in our time, and I, I might be older than both of you, I'm 43 now, but in our generation and in our time, this is our moment and this is our issue. And the question is, Will we rise to the challenge and actually change this? And can we honestly say that we have already given it our all? Have we, you know, because most of our generation, we don't have any staying power on this stuff. You know, are you there? Yeah, yeah, we're here. Okay, I heard something click off. (laughs) When I say some staying power... This is an issue that's going to take... We, we did a lot of protesting last year, okay? So all protest needs to be tied to policy. All policy needs to be tied to political pressure because the policy is never going to be changed without political pressure. And I say this, no politician, none of them, are going to do the right thing because it's the right thing. They're only going to do it because it's politically expedient and they're only going to do it when their political livelihood is put at issue and in jeopardy. We come up with a day, with a way right now, we talk to some MIT folks, and we come up with a way to raise the dead and heal the sick. And we run down to Capitol Hill across the street here, and I say, hey, I just came up with a way, and I got it patented, and it's a way to heal the dead, raise the dead and heal the sick. A politician will tell you, what about my doctor vote and what about my funeral home vote they'll be concerned about that they won't be concerned about the powerful solution that we came up with so i think that as we mature and as we take the what we have this framework and what we have this policy change into our next uh iteration our next evolution it's now about putting together the political units to be able to change take, take put this policy into practice and then being part of that policy is accountability accountability so i I mean i could talk on this stuff almost all night but that's just what i i I still think that we have not done our best bet yet you know we have not played our best hand yet i still think that that's still on the table leslie Hmm. you know i find that interesting i i will agree that maybe this generation hasn't but i'm pretty sure that generations before us have put their all into this thing they did and that's, how we're, that's how we're here yeah there, but the I, thing I'm is saying, that, yeah, but, that's, but, that's, that's but if we look at the reality of the situation we didn't get any of those those things that we think were accomplished during those times we shifted right, from so, jim crow to mass incarceration we sh- shifted from slavery okay. to jim crow and in reality 
slavery ended not because of any moral standing or fighting that 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 was done yes there were abolitionists there then but in reality this country was almost torn apart in half and it ended up being a financial one reason why it came to not be here anymore so i i you know first that would be my first thing and then as far as the jim crow situation goes i mean people like to look at at the civil rights movement as though um all of the things that were driven for were accomplished in it and when our leaders start getting killed and assassinated and maligned and arrested um and you see the more radical forms of that movement taking its its hold in this country what do you see you see a government use all of its power and might to shut it down and it's not because people weren't committed. It's not because they didn't want to push harder. It's because they literally dropped bombs on buildings in Philadelphia. Because yeah, they I'm, literally- not say, I'm not saying it's because people weren't committed back then. I mean, because I, obviously the kids, we, we, did, we did get some change out of the civil rights movement. We did get some things. And I'm not saying that, I'm not saying that they weren't committed. There has not been a continuation of that commitment from generation to generation to our generation. And so here, let me, let me, let me put that into it's what I, what I mean by that. There has not been a continuation of commitment from generation to generation. That's a pretty bold statement, but I can qualify it by saying this. The generation that actually was the civil rights era, they got bombed. They got killed. They got dogs. They got water hoses. They earned it. The next generation, sad but true, it's my mom's generation. They're in their 60s now. They were the first benefactors of the civil rights movement. They were the ones in the 70s when companies were, quote-unquote, trying to diversify and hire, you know, their first round of African Americans. They were the, 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 the Bill Cosby generation, so to speak. They were the ones who the, they took, they gave them jobs, and they, I'm saying gave them, gave them to them, but they were the first generation to experience, so to speak, uh, any of that forward momentum. But they didn't earn it. That particular generation didn't earn it, okay? Their, their parents, my grandmother and them, the ones in their 70s and 80s now, they're the ones who actually earned it. They're the ones who marched. They're the ones who went through the, the real commitment level. So there's not been a continuation of that commitment. So therefore, in my generation, the 40-something generation, we're not as committed to progress and to uh, uh, changing this stuff as, say, they were back in the 60s, okay? Now, you, the generation beneath, Ricky, how old are you? I'm 30. Yeah, that generation shows more commitment than the previous two generations. What the young folks have done with Black Lives Matter and with this stuff that's happened over the last, they have shown more commitment than the 40-year-olds, than the 50-year-olds, and damn sure the 60-year-olds. But there has not been a continuation of that commitment of the way that it, of what was absolutely necessary to make the changes that we experience now. We couldn't talk like yeah. this in the 60s. That would have got us by now. Colin Tell would have been on us by now. Mm. Okay? Yeah. So what I'm saying is, is there is a disconnect and we have to, we have to acknowledge that we're not fighting with a full capacity of our generational, 
uh, army of young black folks who understand what's necessary. That generation right there, and Ricky's generation, and DeRay and them, man, they've done an absolute magnificent job with what they were handed down. My generation, and I speak this, we're the ones, and I'm 40, we're the ones who have got some of the legacy civil rights organizations whose name I'm not going to call, and we're fine with just getting paid $120,000 a year and never never thinking a damn about what's going to happen to the next generation. Right. We're fine flying. We're, fly, we're fine asking our uh, parishioners to buy us a $65 million jet while everybody else around that church lives in squalor. That's that generation. Right. So what I'm saying is, is that that commitment that we need to see, it's already there. It's already there. I just want to push them over the top now because my generation, we're going to get rich or die trying. Yeah, that's, I mean, uh, I hear you. Yeah, I've, said, I've spoke ahead, on that before. Um, that I'm, I'm probably one of the older millennials, but it's. <sighs> I, I see it. I mean, there's it, there's no question yeah. of it, but yeah. But to I me, that 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 says to me that this generation, this younger generation, millennials and and younger or, or just just below me, I'm not quite forty, but I'm I'm heading that direction. Um, mm-hmm. That when they when when they are looking at problems in a completely different way, we should be listening mm-hmm. to them. When they say things like. Reform is not the way. We've tried reform before. However, it played out. It didn't go in our favor. And we can't negotiate with a system that is set up for us to fail. Because that's what I, I hear from on that. I caution on that. And the only reason I say that is this, Les. Check this out. All right? When we make a conclusory statement like that, reform didn't work, you and I wouldn't be on this phone call if reform didn't work. We wouldn't be experiencing some of the benefits that we do if it didn't work. The more accurate statement is there was some reform that still needed to be done that wasn't completed. That wasn't completed. The the, the continuation of what happened in the 60s, it got rooted out. They picked off through COINTEL uh, and other methods of hiring, and, 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 and they created this, they literally created, they divided and conquered. They used an old strategy. And so the baby boomers, the 60-year-olds, they're 60 now, they they got paid and they used to, this, this, there used to be this statement here. And I, don't know, you know, I know you all heard this by some of the old timers. I got mine, you better get yours. So that's one of their statements. Not, yeah. I got mine and I'm going to show you how to get yours. You know, that's legacy, okay? So there's this disconnect. There's that disconnect. So I... I, I do caution, you know, I, I will listen to whatever a young person has to say. and But then I'm not going to, like my kids, I, we have an open dialogue kind of policy in here. When they have an idea, I want to hear it. Shit, they might say something I never even thought of. But I do know this, if we're talking about just throwing the baby out with the bathwater, I, you know, I see that as an extreme response that's not going to get any traction. I think that we're in an extreme situation. 
That's I do the, agree we're in a extreme. I do. I do agree we're. I agree we're in a extreme situation. Sounds pretty but, normal and certainly something that should be considered because we're not just talking yeah. about um, small things that are going on, and we're also not just talking about one aspect of things with the criminal justice system that's going on. It's not as though all we're discussing is mass incarceration, or all we're discussing are extrajudicial killings, or all we're discussing is the over-criminalization of black and brown people. We're talking about all of those things. It's super extreme. Extreme, yeah. extreme. It, yeah, and it is at the point where, honestly, a lot of people are starting to question, Do is the baby even fucking alive? Shouldn't we be throwing right, so, the baby out with the bathwater? So that's why I'm saying so, like, so, that, that additional so, so. information, that the pulse, is basically mm-hmm. a way of taking the baby's pulse, is using mm-hmm. that data in the short term and using those tactics to to Mm -hmm. keep as many of us safe as possible Mm -hmm. is a good short-term solution now can you go further than that can you push it that further yeah of course you can but do you should you is the question you use that data to create policies that will change the practices because the thing in principle is still it's, 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 it's redeemable if we, if we have the level of commitment that was displayed in the 60s. So, okay. you that, know, I mean, so, if, you, if, if, you, if you have that amount of commitment, then sure, it's possible. Um, yeah, it's possible. But, you know, again, that's why we're, that part of this is about taking that, that pulse. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I I'm with. I'm for whatever works at, at the end game. You prove to me mm-hmm. this, 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 and this works, and you, you, mm-hmm. you. We can connect the dots and say, all right, this sounds like it should work. Are there pitfalls? Yeah. Okay. We'll have to watch out for this pitfall. We'll have to watch out for that one. We'll have to watch out for this. These are. It's. Yeah. You can take any system and and understand the pitfalls just based on human nature, and then slide privileged and under and underprivileged people into whatever classes they are as you, if you're building a society. Yes. However, mm-hmm. like at some point <laughs> shit has to go. At some point we as as a country, we decided that we were done with this whole like monarchy thing. There's nothing inherently wrong with a monarchy. Like a monarchy is a system, there's nothing wrong with it, but the practice itself was so fucking destructive that we decided eh, there were other reasons too, of course. But we decided mm-hmm. we were going to fucking break away. It was so toxic to us that we threw the baby out with the bathwater, literally. Sometimes yeah. you have to have – and they sat in rooms for hours and months and months, and they had these discussions. We are not having this discussion as a, as a country as we should be, as a society. Fuck as a country. I mean as a global fucking society, as yes. a species. Yes. It's a tool. Uh, our justice system is a tool. Some tools are really too dangerous for human beings to have around. They just are. That's the reason we don't have time travel. That and it's probably impossible. But if it, I'm just saying, like, if it were possible, it would be something we should never fucking use because we as human beings have not evolved to the point where we can adequately use it in a beneficial way. We should have never fucking figured out how to develop cars and to drill for oil. Why? Because it's probably going to be the fucking death of us. Not a be- not the best tool to have. If it's gonna kill you, you see what I mean. So okay, so your your argument is our system of justice is 
just something that we shouldn't have because it's too dangerous the way that it's used now? I I question whether it is. I don't know one way or the other. I think it's a really close call, and it's a closer call than people are willing to admit. I, I, I think the only reason that our justice system is the way that it is is because our justice system has been used as a tool for racial oppression. And that if we just look at the justice system and pulled out the component of using it as a tool for racial oppression, then... Oh, oh, wait, one, and one more, one more additional thing that it's used for now at this point. Uh, it's used for profit, okay? Then if we pulled out those two components, our criminal justice system is not dangerous. It's actually resourceful, and it's meant to do a good purpose and a good function. And we need to try to get to that core purpose and that core function. Our criminal justice system was not meant for people to make investments in it and pull cash out of it like it's some kind of Fortune 500 company. And it was not meant, it, it should not be used, and it was, it, it, even though it has been primarily used to, to, to uh, control large groups of Africans and, and, and African Americans in this country, it should not be used for those purposes. So, um, I mean... I don't know what to say. I did the call because I, 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 I love your show. I love what you guys do. You know, I just don't agree with this notion of, 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 of throwing away our justice system. I hear you, and I th- that's why we wanted to have you on because I want I want to hear yeah. the points. But I will say that, yeah. you know, um, mm-hmm. what you just said made me think of something, and now I forgot it because I was saying something else. Go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> no, I got, I, I got it. Um, I, I think that... Oh, I know what this I was going to say. Problem. Sorry, I just remembered. Oh, go ahead. But go the ahead. things that you mentioned, all the reform things that we've discussed, none of those remove those things that you just mentioned from the criminal justice system. What they do is they assess the problems that are currently existing there, and none of those address privatization and monetary gain, and not just by companies, but by our government. I'm talking zero about, on point eight has end for profit policing. Yes, and that doesn't end, that doesn't stop a city from making money off of ticketing individuals. No, no, no. It doesn't do that. So we still I, I, are going to have. I, a, I know that there's still. I know that, that I, I would distinguish for profit policing and 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 and, and profit uh, corporate prisons from the uh, 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 everyday practice of ticketing people for uh, civil fines and traffic violations. I, you know, but I, you can't separate so I, them. I, the outcome is the same. The outcome is that poor black people are taken advantage of. That's the outcome of both of them. So that gets, that gets, that gets to my second, that gets to my second uh, thing that, 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 that I'm addressing, which is the reason why there needs to be, tracking and accountability of those numbers is that when we have a situation like Ferguson, it shouldn't be after we've had a shooting, it should be remedied as soon as we see it, as soon as we see the numbers take up to something that's way outside the bounds. You know, right. even though Ferguson, even though Ferguson, the, the, the demographics there were largely African American, Ferguson's ticketing ratio was way higher than a city for their size. Ferguson's uh, 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 um, people being on probation was way higher than a city of this size. So if we really want to do the work, which is the, the, the work of reforming, that's part of the work, which is 
tracking it, holding those folks that are accountable. And when I say holding them accountable, I'm not talking about consent decrees, which is what the DOJ did. I'm talking about criminalizing when somebody does what they did in Ferguson, the judge should go to jail, the city manager who wrote the note to the police chief saying, hey, you know, we need to amp up the da-da-da-da-da, you know, he needs to go to jail, and the police officers who did it, and the police chief should have been charged with, at the very least, RICO violation because they used a government organization to personally enrich themselves. That's not what it. That's not what the ticketing process is supposed to be for. Ticketing is just supposed to pay for public safety in a way that is minimally invasive and not targeted towards a specific race or gender of people. It's just supposed to take care of itself. It's just like taxation. Yeah, I mean, in but perfect on the environment. Other token, and, the 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 other the other token of that is is that. Part of that would then involve giving the Department of Justice or whatever federal entity you have to put in charge of doing this because you'd have to put a federal entity in charge of it. There's no incentive for anyone else to do it. Um, so, Which I agree with. Yeah. I, I, I agree with that. Yeah. that the monitoring so, – so how do you incentivize police departments for doing the right thing? We've done this already for many, many things. It's even done in the educational environments. Every state has its, its own policing powers. Every state has its own educational uh, um, apparatus inside their, inside their state. If they want to get federal dollars for anything, they've got to conform to federal guidelines. And ERPA, which is the Interracial Profiling Act, that's been held up in Congress for years. And until we make that a political issue, that is a do or die for those for, for, for those folks, then it's going to st- sit out there for years. We're so, we're still but not, to me you're proving what you're point. saying is just saying. what you're saying is modern day conservatism must die. <laughs> I, this is something I've said for years, but yeah, like modern day conservatism is the cause of everything that you spoke of. It's the cause of the fact that they, that those bills are sitting in Congress. It's the fact that. Um, these people can get away with it. The, 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 people like to say that the the um, you know the DOJ doesn't have much teeth, but it's because they don't have much teeth because no fucking judge will will do it. You know what I mean? Like there's no even if you bring charges against someone, like there's no judge who's gonna fucking interpret the law in any manner that makes it that makes it feasible. And even if they do at the Supreme Court level, it's there's no way that it would stick. Even if you got that high. So yeah, Well, one more thing. We do have a working example of how it's supposed to work on the local level too. I want to attack police accountability and uh, from 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 both ends, locally and federally. Okay, in Baltimore, you have a brilliant young prosecutor who chose as a Freddie Gray to do the system to, to do it the way that it's supposed to be done, and she presented the issues and she indicted the individuals who were responsible for that. Okay. And uh, I think just yesterday or day before I got a memo that, uh, uh, an email alert that she indicted another police officer for beating somebody in the parking lot, uh, while he was handcuffed. So what, what, what I'm saying is, is that locally we need to hold our prosecutors accountable. And our judges accountable. How do we hold them accountable? 
Most of them are elected officials. If they're not willing to prosecute the police, then we need to change that apparatus. That's Before I get to the throw the baby out with the bathwater, I want to try that. I want to try that, and then I also want to make these 435 people down here at the House do what they're supposed to do in terms of the policies that have been suggested to fix racial profiling. I want to, I want to try to see, because none of this stuff has been made law. Why? Because then our thing is we want to have it enforced. And, and that's it, you know. There's, every time somebody is killed by the police in a state, there are at least some due process considerations and issues that need to be heard, period. These shootings that are taking place, the way that they're conducted, um, by their very occurrence, the state should have to justify why they did what they did. Hmm. Yeah, um, we may have to disagree, agree to disagree on this particular point, Jonathan, but I do appreciate you coming on and making your case. I mean, obviously, um, in truth, as I said earlier, it's going to be difficult to see either solution to its endpoint because we are fighting a large machine that is not exactly going to be giving up power without a fight um, just by the nature of what power does, uh, doesn't concede quietly. Um, so we're already starting to see that pushback. We're already starting to see that pushback. Absolutely. And so we're starting to see that pushback. They're starting to try to characterize Black Lives Matter and any of this police reform stuff as extreme racist groups. Yeah. And, uh, and, and so my, 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 uh, you know, my counter to that is, is that not only are we not extreme and not only are we not racist, you know, here's our suggestions. What do you have to say about these? Can we get these implemented? They don't really want to deal with that because these suggestions and the things that have been done over the last year uh, really have brought to light a lot of issues that need to be dealt with inside law enforcement and the criminal justice system. I, you, you, you know, I, but I do hear the argument of, you know, hey, we, you know, is this system worthy of salvation? And I think for me to the other part of it is that I don't think that any of these reforms truly get rid of the authority of the police. We're talking yeah. about it in yeah, practice. It does, but it doesn't speak to the heart of the, the concept of some person having authority mm-hmm. over others. And that I think is where, you know, I don't know what reform can change that fact. Because in, mm-hmm. no matter what system you draw up, if it's in the current sphere that we have and you're just reforming things, the authority is still there. And that's why I, and that's why I mentioned the domestic violence in the beginning was because um, in K, you, we see all the time, you know, the neighbors didn't want to say anything. The guy's a cop. I don't want to do that mm-hmm. to them. This is them exerting their authority in arenas. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't just happen in black and brown neighborhoods. It's how they operate, period. Um, and that's how so they... It, yeah. So the, the, the way that that is dealt with, OIDV, is that the same thing. You know, nobody wants to tell on cops. I don't care whether it's a wife or if it's somebody who's uh, being, uh, you know, in certain towns, you know, the cops go around and they eat free. Yep. You know, some people have said, I feel like I'm being made to give them a free meal. You know, nobody wants to tell on cops. 
we have to put the mechanism in place that cops can be told on and cops can be prosecuted and will be prosecuted when that stuff happens. You know, um, NAACP, I'm going to pitch now, NAACP put together a, a police incident reporting platform. And in that police incident reporting platform, it's online, and we're, we're making that an app this year. That's, how, that's my, my, my big project for this year, is we start off with the with, with, with we're not just dealing with um, excessive force and shootings. Those are always, most people are going to get help in those scenarios, whether they report it in our system or not. But we start off with har- harassment and intimidation. We start off with, uh, we, we also cover, one of the categories is officer-involved sexual assault, officer-involved domestic violence, in-custody deaths. Uh, then, we, then it goes up into the fatal and non-fatal shootings and the excessive force, which are, you know, excessive force slash beatings. But, you know, until we, we get, until we, you know, get a mechanism in place that police officers are charged, just like every other American citizen, when they violate the law, then, you, you know, then nothing, you can't expect anything to happen that's going to, you know, fix any of this stuff. Hmm. So. All right, uh, let's go on some final thoughts. Ricky? Um, again, I just, we really should have this conversation about all of our institutions on a regular basis. Um, do we need capitalism? Capitalism is a, is a system that eh, we haven't always expressly had, but we've, we've had since forever. Um, why these things, the reason why these things persist is because we never have these, that conversation. We're always trying to have the conversation about um, reform and fixing it when sometimes it's it's better to question you getting even like because look at it at this point or from this perspective if there's no one in that room to say that um, to even ask that question then meeting in the middle is always half-assed reform because if you're preaching half-assed reform or if you're preaching full reform and it works and you're coming to the table with it. Sometimes that just doesn't fucking work. They'd be like, you know what? Well, we'll meet. We'll meet you halfway. Halfway is still half-ass reform. Somebody needs to be to the left of that. I, that that was my only point in tonight. Is that is to is to ask ask those questions because they don't get asked enough. Right. And I think that's certainly a lot of the first steps towards abolition too. I mean, we start. Certainly one of the biggest steps is decarceration, which I think, you know, that's just something that even those that are looking for reform are looking to do as well. So I don't I, I don't want to characterize it as it's like one or the other. You better choose your side. I don't I don't believe that because I feel that along either of those paths, there's a lot of um, agreement on what needs to happen. Certainly the next steps as we stand, as we said, at this crisis point, um, which is to stop the killings and to stop um, the terrorizing of black and brown communities in this country. So that would be my last thoughts on the matter. I, I will say that, you know, when I started doing um, this work, I started out in, in the reform side of things. I did a lot of legislative lobbying and a lot of legislative work in New Jersey. I worked towards uh, bail reform. I worked towards uh, parole reform and did a lot of lobbying and 
testifying and lots of work in that arena. And, um, you know, it was a really eye opening experience for me on many levels, but it also showed me how easy it is for reform to be, um, manipulated within the system when you're trying to make it happen. And it gave me a different perspective on, um, what, could be possible and kind of thinking of things in a different way. But again, I do think that there's a lot of common ground. Um, you know, anything that goes to decrease the number of people that are being put in prisons, anything that goes towards stopping the killing of black and brown um, people for no reason whatsoever by our criminal justice system and law enforcement in general is a good thing. So to me, there's a lot there that um, both sides of this particular um you know, approach can can agree on and move forward with and working together. So I hope that that's where people go. Um, while we may not have the same end result in mind, we have a lot of things that we can be working together towards addressing the issues that each of us has, whether it be penal farms, which is, you know, something that I find just aberrant, generally speaking, especially for those that work in, you know, the free the land and um, black farming movement, just that the concept of that is so offensive. But anyways, mm-hmm. that'd be my last point. Um, how about you, Jonathan? Well, since you're the guest, we'll leave you at the last point. And when follow, you're done, please make sure you tell everybody what you what say. Country. You know, there's a lot of common ground. I, I, I agree. I, I understand that 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 transition that you made because when I first started I was really a you know staunch oh you know policy and 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 and, and, and I'm not for all these protests you know I was really why why is you know I, I literally was saying we don't have to march all the time yeah we actually do have to march you know and so I think that all of us come to the table at a different point of understanding and what I see in the next generation millennials uh, is a transition from you know. Um, the baby boomers to generation X to, um, um, you know, what the millennials uh, believe. And I, I think none of it is, um, none of it is out is, is, is irrational. Um, Rick made a very good point in that, you know, we do have to be bold enough to ask the question of, do we really need this? Because without actually asking that question, my beck and call for, should we be reforming this? Will never be taken seriously. Exactly. Because the uh, you know, and that's that's something that I will say. You know, I respect that argument because one of the questions that can be said out of this is that <clears throat> do we really need this in this form and in this fashion? The answer is completely, definitively, no. We will be better off without it in this form. My in the, you know, my role at this point and my understanding at this point is, is that, you know, I still would like to see, you know, reform tried and I can completely understand if somebody or has come to the table with uh, a different perspective and says, I don't even want to try reform. You know, this is what I believe should be happening at this point because there is a history here of, of, of none of this being fixed, but, I say that, you know, I'm, I'm glad that we were able to have this conversation, and even if we don't agree on everything, there's a lot of common ground here, and uh, I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you so much. And tell everyone where they can um, get in touch with you and find more information about NA, um, NAAPB. Okay. So we have our regular Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash NAAPB. Uh, we have our regular phone line, which 
rings directly to me. If not me, it, it forwards to some of my assistants. It's 202-749-9775. And uh, we also have a web page, uh, which is www.nwapb.org. So those are our places that they can get a hold to us. Wonderful. Um, and thanks, everyone, for joining us. You can find me on Twitter at... Leslie Mack, that's M-A-C. You can find uh, Ferguson Response at uh, at Ferguson, R-E-S-P. And uh, you can also find actions and um, different movement things going on in your area, in your city, by going to fergusonresponse.tumblr.com. And you can find Ricky occasionally uh, on Twitter at A-U-A-D-O-T-Org and almost always on Facebook, um, which is Facebook backslash A-U-A. Is it AUA Movement, Ricky? It's AUA Movement, yeah. Ah, haha, I got it. Backslash AUA Movement, or just search for Americans United again. Uh, thanks again, Jonathan, <coughs> for joining us, and we will see you guys next time. Thank you. All right. Take care. Ferguson Response is pleased to support the upcoming Women's Freedom Conference, an all-digital conference, 100% online event, taking place on October 25th that will center and amplify the unique voices and experiences of underrepresented women who have been disenfranchised beyond gender alone. Women of color, whose identities are intersectional and whose womanhood is shaped and defined along those intersections. Visit womensfreedomconference.com for more information and join me, Leslie Mack, every Friday on Twitter for Women's Freedom Friday, a weekly live Twitter chat exploring topics that affect women of color around the world. This week, Friday, September 18th, I'm joined by Jamie Broadnax, founder of Black Girl Nerds, to discuss the importance of education access for women of color globally. Follow hashtag Women's Freedom Friday and join us at 6 p.m. Eastern to participate in the conversation. Take it away, Janelle.